This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is the second episode of our series India United. We are talking about the integration of princely states to the independent Indian state. Today we discuss the constitutional aspects of the integration process, India's proposal to the states and the position of the Viceroy Lord Mountbatten. In the last episode you heard that uh, some British officials were not in favor of the integration of states. there was prospect of a separate third country of the princes which did not come to much but not all officials were against the integration all british officials i mean lord mountbatten was in fact a firm supporter of india's position we'll come to that in fact with that we will conclude this episode but before that let's return to the states department which was set up in couple of months really before independence was to arrive the decision to set up the new states department was followed by an important letter from jawarlal nehru to lord mountbatten nehru uh, in that letter made clear his views about the functions of the proposed states department now there was a discussion on that letter at a meeting with the viceroy's advisers and patel and menon menon more particularly was now given the task to prepare in consultation with the political advisor of the viceroy that is conrad caulfield a note which should present definite proposals vp menon then med prepared a memorandum he suggested that the states department should function as a single organization with two ministers one of them would be from the congress and the other from the muslim league there would also be two secretaries so that on partition the states department could be divided into two parts to deal with the respective countries of Pakistan and India Mountbatten approved that note that memorandum and it was duly circulated among the members of the cabinet now on behalf of the congress uh, Jawaharlal Nehru nominated Sardar Patel he was the member of home and information and broadcasting in the interim cabinet is now to take charge of the states department and jinnah on behalf of the muslim league suggested the name of abdur rab nishtar some time later sardar patel a few days as a matter of fact sardar patel sent for a vp menon and offered him the secretaryship of the states department menon told sardar that uh, he wanted to retire after 15th of august he had been working since 1917 and dealing with constitutional reforms for the last 30 years 
uh, he had not expected to see a free India in his lifetime. And since India would now be free, he thought he would retire in peace. But Patel had other plans in mind. Patel said that uh, Menon had taken a prominent part in the transfer of power and he should consider it his duty to work for the consolidation of freedom. It goes without saying, really, that Menon accepted Patel's offer. Now, Menon was also the constitutional advisor to Lord Mountbatten, and the appointment was to take effect immediately. Therefore, Menon had to go and bring it up to Lord Mountbatten as well. So, Mountbatten told Menon that he was in fact thinking of setting his appointment up as governor of one of the most important provinces. But Menon said that um, from his understanding with the conversation with Sardar Patel, he thought that uh, Patel felt it to be in the interests of the country that Menon should remain for some time with the government of India. Mountbatten advised Menon to accept uh, Sardar Patel's offer and later, in fact, wrote a charming letter to Menon. So Menon then went to Sardar Patel and showed him Lord Mountbatten's letter. He also reminded Patel that um, since they met in August 1946, he consulted Patel as much as possible about constitutional matters. They had indeed got on quite well together. And the position at the time was that though Patel was consulted, the final responsibility for Menon's opinion was his alone. Now, however, they were to work as minister and secretary in the state's department. Menon was a little uncertain whether they would hit it off together quite well. Patel disproved all those concerns. Menon, in fact, felt that he thought that Congress leaders distrusted the permanent civil servants or secretaries. Patel thought those fears were completely baseless. He would do everything possible to bring about a most cordial atmosphere between the cabinet and the services. So Patel and Menon got down to discussing the general conditions in the country as a result of partition and with regard particularly to the problems of the states. Uh, Menon told Patel that the states need not join either of the constituent assemblies, but they could have particular arrangements with the government of either Pakistan or India, depending on geographical contiguity, geographical closeness or proximity. After the announcement of the partition, the rulers on one side of the border realized that they should strengthen the Indian Union and started gradually to come to the Constituent Assembly. They were nonetheless quite uh, jealous about their own sovereignty. And Menon thought they should not be forced. At the same time, the attitude of some of the rulers were a matter of concern. And Pakistan was toying with the idea of getting some of the border states to join 
the new country of Pakistan. Now, what were really the consequences of the lapse of Paramount? See, I did touch upon it a bit. Now, Menon thought that the lapse of Paramount, see, or the timing of it, was the greatest disservice the British had done Indians and the rulers. During the course of a century, the provinces and the states had been welded together. The structure of central authority had rested on two pillars. One of its foundations was in the British-ruled provinces and the other was in the states. In all India matters, cooperation and uniformity of policy, so far as the states were concerned, had been enforced through the residents or the residencies. Important cantonments and military installations were located in the states. They were of strategic importance. The Indian railway system spanned the territories of the states and of the provinces, obviously. And in the interests of the safety and convenience of the traveling public, arrangements had been made in the states or agreements had been made with the states which allowed civil and criminal jurisdiction over railway lands to be handed over to the Crown representative. Again, one of the provincial capital was located in a minor state. In post and telegraphs, control of arms and ammunitions, extradition and surrender of criminals or fugitives, control of opium and other narcotics, in overall food policy, these were only some of the few matters which affected all India security and welfare. So in these matters, the political department of the British government and the residencies in the states acted as a coordinating agency. Now, the cabinet mission had announced the lapse of paramountcy in uh, the memorandum of 12th of May, 1946. Menon told Sardar that uh, he was never consulted on that question and he was unhappy about the decision. Nonetheless, he understood the position of the cabinet mission and he, of course, had to respond to it. So, at the same time, he suggested to Patel, the Secretary Menon suggested to Patel that the British government's decision to extinguish paramountcy, to take it off, might prove not an unmixed evil. And it was also possible that some good might yet come of it. He did not have any ready-made plan for the solution of the state's problems immediately. So, how did Menon design the plan for integration? He did earlier draw up a scheme which he now revived. He elaborated that plan to Sardar Patel. Here was the plan. If the states were to give away control on three subjects, basic three subjects, the unity of India would be achieved, 
and when the new constitution was framed they could thrash out the bureaucracy could thrash out the necessary details concerning the relations between the center and states now these three crucial areas were defense defense was obviously a matter on which no state could conduct uh, its own affairs the second was external affairs and it was intricately linked with defense the states had never handled it earlier even the largest of the states could not hope to pull it off the third was communications communications was a means of maintaining the very lifelines of the country and without the cooperation of the indian state the states could do nothing in uh, that matter so menon suggested patel that uh, the communal uh, this was quite strategic as a matter of fact he suggested that in the background of the communal flare up in north india some hindu rulers had begun to turn away from pakistan and menon suggested that this development can be used to the advantage of the indian state but time was extremely short and uh, there were barely a few weeks sardar immediately took the proposal to nehru nehru was in agreement with that proposal nonetheless the prime minister was probably a little skeptical about the success of the plan patel himself was not over optimistic he was doubtful whether we could get the accession policy implemented in the few weeks before 15th of august but more importantly menon proposed that they needed the active cooperation of lord mountbatten so it was brought immediately to the attention of lord mountbatten menon went over and met lord mountbatten and briefed him about his consultation with sardar patel menon requested mountbatten to help in getting the states to accede on those three subjects and uh, generally wanted mountbatten's advice and backing he felt that uh, mountbatten was deeply touched that uh, menon said the wounds of partition might to some extent be healed by the states entering into some kind of a relationship with the government of india and he also said that mountbatten would earn the gratitude of generations of indians if he could assist in achieving the basic unity of the country now the basic policy was thus settled mountbatten agreed with the broad contours of menon's plan but he had not yet taken charge of the state department menon had not yet taken charge of the state's department yet <laughs> meanwhile sir conrad corfield had to got read off he had been pressing menon to set up the state's department he was asking repeatedly for the agenda of the forthcoming meeting with the rulers now once menon's plan was related to corfield uh, when menon told corfield that the government of india had decided 
on the policy of accession, Corfield literally threw up his hands in surprise. He considered the policy as too ambitious. And he thought that uh, such policies had failed in the past. But Menon was clear. Those negotiations had been conducted in other circumstances by the political department. But now the conditions have changed subsequently and quite fundamentally. So by 3rd of July, Menon met Sardar Patel once again and suggested that the first thing to do when the state's department came into being was to ally, was to remove any possible suspicion on the part of the rulers. This could be done by means of a statement defining the attitude and policy of the government of India throughout with regard to the state. Menon prepared such a statement on the 4th of July. And uh, part of it, he writes, Menon writes, was based on Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. Sardar Patel was happy with the statement. The statement was issued on the 5th of July. Let me quote directly from that statement. I quote, The states have already accepted the basic principle that for defense, foreign affairs and communications, they would come into the Indian Union. We ask no more of them than accession on these three subjects in which the common interests of the country are involved. This country, with its institutions, is the proud heritage of the people who inhabit it. It is an accident that some live in the States and some in British India, but all alike partake of its culture and character. We are all knit together by bonds of blood and feeling, no less than self-interest. None can segregate us into segments. No impossible barriers can be set up between us. I suggest that it is therefore better for us to make laws sitting together as friends than to make treaties as aliens. I invite my friends, the rulers of states and their people to the councils of the Constituent Assembly in this spirit of friendliness and cooperation, in a joint endeavor inspired by the common allegiance to our motherland for the common good of us all." Unquote. This was Patel addressing the states. The statement also emphasized that the Congress, and I quote, are no enemies of the princely order, but on the other hand, wish them and their people under their aegis all prosperity, contentment and happiness. Nor would it be my policy to conduct the relations of the new department with the states in any manner which severs the domination of one over the other. If there would be any domination, it would be that of our mutual interests and welfare. We are at a momentous stage in the history of India. By common endeavor, 
we can raise the country to a new greatness. While lack of unity will expose us to fresh calamities, I hope the Indian states will bear in mind that the alternative to cooperation in the general interest is anarchy and chaos, which will overwhelm great and small in a common ruin if we are unable to act together in the minimum of common tasks, unquote. That was Patel, Menon, and the project of the state's department of the independent state of India. So this really is the project of the state department, state's department, but now the department has to be made operational. And how would that come about? The only problem was that there were no officials. The political department of the crown had been shutting down through April and May. By July, most senior officials had gone home on leave or had applied for their pensions. Only Sir Conrad Corfield clung on to office. So VP, VP Menon arranged for the transfer of C.C. Desai from the Ministry of Supply. Desai had a long history in administration across the country and he was available at short notice. Eventually, he turned out to be a most able deputy and uh, along with other junior aides, he formed VP Menon's own core team. These were the men who would put their heads together over the reordering of India's political map. It was not uh, long before the state's ministry would become a juggernaut by itself. Under the leadership of Patel, with VP Menon as his deputy, the ministry began to weed out the men it believed were detrimental to the integration of India. And the first to go was Conrad Corfield. This is the story I want to talk about now. The final episode came in consequence of a heated discussion between VP Menon Corfield and others over clauses about the states in the Indian Independence Bill. Now, the issue at stake centered around the lapse of paramountcy. Menon had his eye on the strategically important agreements with states like Bahawalpur and Bekaner over the Sutlej Valley canals and also on the agreement on salt with states like Jaipur and Jodhpur. It would be to India's great advantage if she could take over those agreements from Britain. Corfield was infuriated. He saw it as a trap for the states in question. So VP lost the argument at the time, earlier on. So matters would not take long to come to some kind of a crisis. They knew fully well that Corfield was working relentlessly to ensure that the princess stayed out of the independent union of India. So VP Menon decided to approach the princess himself. His first meeting was with uh, the Maharaja of Patiala, Yadavindra Singh. 
He was an intelligent man and Menon decided not to insult his intelligence. And I quote, Menon wrote that I told him frankly that independent of us, you cannot exist, unquote. Menon's decision to be blunt worked. The Maharaja may well have left the meeting with the uncomfortable knowledge that Patiala had been given no choice but to accede to India. And yet, the fact is that in 1951, when Menon retired from government service, the Maharaja not only officiated at uh, his son's wedding, Menon's son's wedding as a witness, but also housed the Menon family in Shimla for the duration of their stay. Soon, nearly every major ruler, all of whom met the new secretary to the state's department, realized that here was a man who enjoyed the full support and backing of the government. In July, the Maharaja of Jodhpur's ADC called upon Menon. Menon does not name the ADC, but uh, it was well known that Maharaja of Jodhpur was wavering between joining India or Pakistan. And Jinnah was circling him like a vulture. Menon writes, and I quote, that ADC told me that Jodhpur had been to see Corfield many times. Sir Conrad had come often to see him too. Long meetings, which sometimes went on into the night. I was so angry, unquote. VP was even more livid when he discovered plans to encourage the Nawab of Fopal to believe in the viability of deploying a third force, some kind of an independent militia against the Union of India. That was the last straw. Menon went straight to Lord Mountbatten and told him in no uncertain terms that, uh, let me quote, I told him that either Corfield should go or I would. The two of us could not be in Delhi any longer at the same time. I told Mountbatten that I did not need or want his advice. And if he thought we could get along together, he was making a big mistake." Unquote. Mountbatten was no great admirer of Conrad Corfield himself. By the middle of July, Conrad Corfield departed the country. He had always loved India. But his use had clearly ended. He had long overstayed his welcome. On 10th July, a bunch of senior princes, Patiala, Baroda, Bekaner, and Gwalier, went to one Aurangzeb road. It was not really a formal conference, but uh, it was intended to break the eyes and allow some of the major princes to get to know the new minister and his secretary. Sardar Patel and VP Menon met them formally, that is. The Sardar explained uh, their terms of accession and also explained the role of the state's ministry in that process. The rulers broadly agreed to the agenda which was now made for a larger conference of the Chamber of Princes, 
which was to take place on 25th of July. Now, Menon then prepared and sent off a formal agenda for accession. He now wanted it delivered to Abdul Rab Nishtar, the Pakistan counterpart of his. Now, obviously, Jinnah was exploding in anger. He was deeply suspicious of Indian intentions. He now began to dangle promises to the princes of their guaranteed independence in Pakistan. But by this point, most of these distractions were only distractions. There were other distractions too. Ramaswamy Iyer, we've met Ramaswamy Iyer earlier. He was a Dewan of Travancore. He sent a letter to Mountbatten on 15th of July. The letter said that since Travancore had chosen to be independent, there was no point in sending a representative for the meeting of the Chambers of Princes on the 25th of July. And even uh, Travancore was threatening a campaign of direct action to begin on the 1st of August, 1947. Mountbatten immediately summoned Sir C.P. Ayer to Delhi. He was promptly made to meet Menon. This time, Menon chose to use a different set of tactics than the ones used with Patiala. Menon spoke about the strategic advantages to Travancore after accession. He appealed to Diwan's intelligence. CP was ready for him. Travancore was a maritime state, he said. And uh, as the instrument stated, it must accede, that is, it would hand over half of its revenue from customs and import-export duties, uh, then it would be a fifth-rate state. But uh, Menon assured him that the instrument of accession would really not carry any financial commitment. All that Srebankur had to do was to accede on defense, external affairs, and communications. Sir C.P. was beginning to soften a little. And then Menon switched deftly to a more personal tack. Let me quote. I assured him of my high regard for both his realistic attitude to affairs and for the part he had played in the past. It ought not to be said of him that at India's critical hour, he had not made his contribution towards building a united India when he had it in his power to do so, unquote. This approach worked brilliantly with Mountbatten, and uh, it would now work its term on C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer. For the first time in many months, the Diwan cooled down a little. He was unbending enough, of course, in front of the Viceroy, to say that uh, he could agree on three subjects. Agree, not accede. That was good enough, but not quite. Menon was brought in again, and this time he changed his tactics again. He said that there would be no talk of any agreement. Travancore had to sign on the dotted line. Nothing else would do. 
On 23rd of July, the Diwan of Travancore returned to Thiruvananthapuram. In his bag, he carried the draft instrument of accession. The deed was done. So the state's department and its secretary had been personally meeting the various princes and their ministers. But it was already 25th of July now. India was beginning to burn. Communal violence was erupting across large parts of the Punjab and Bengal. Those who had not ran away from the smoldering cities and towns battled each other with bricks and stones and homemade bombs. Yet the princes who assembled on the Chamber of Princes in Delhi on 25th of July seemed uh, oblivious to the butchery. Nearly 100 Rajas, Maharajas, Maharanas, Khans, Nawabs and Diwans were meeting as a body for the last time in the council house. It was a huge circular building that would later be the seat of the Parliament of Independent India. Harbert Baker had designed it. Now, these people, the princes, never missed an opportunity to turn on an audacious display of uh, pomp and privilege and richness and wealth. So many of those arrived dressed in richly embroidered achkals, buttoned up to their necks, belts studded with sapphires, rubies, radiating from their turbans to their shoe buckles. In just three weeks, half a century of the freedom struggle would result in Britain's departure. Sir Cyril Radcliffe had been sitting in the Viceregal estate and consulting census reports as he finalized the boundaries of the new dominions of India and Pakistan. The only uncertainty that remained was how the 562 princely states would fit into this new paradigm. It was not just the heat of the day. 25th of July was a very hot day. The temperature had gone up to 44.5 degrees Celsius. So not just the heat of the day which was piling discomfort on an already prickly and politically charged gathering. Just a week earlier, the Indian Independence Act had received the royal assent. It provided for the handover of power to the new dominions on 15th of August. Among the princes, the imminent departure of the Raj evoked a range of emotions. Some of them, as I said, had accepted the inevitability of, inevitability of independence and the necessity of preparing for the new realities. Many of them probably dreaded and resented what they saw as their future once Britain's political and military protection was withdrawn. The rest adopted a posture of insouciant denial. 
For example, Philip Masson wrote that when he arrived in Hyderabad uh, in 46 to tutor the two grandsons of Nizam Usman Ali Khan, what he saw was a naked display of wealth, privilege, and parasitic delight. At a garden party, there was a 60-piece string orchestra conducted by an Anglo-Indian named Henry Loschwitz. It played waltzes and foxtrots, and I quote Masson. It was like the spring of 1789 at Versailles. The men were elegant in black sherwanis. The ladies wore saris of sapphire, of flame color or starlit blue. Everyone seemed to be happy and witty and amused, unquote. But that was soon to change. The meeting would begin. Conflicting rumors swept through the assemblage. Some heard that India's last Viceroy Mountbatten was about to declare the princess independent. Others said that he would make a dramatic announcement which would effectively disconnect the century-old sacred compact between the crown and its feudatories. Mountbatten was now entering the chamber. He seemed to draw strength from the heat like a salamander. Dressed in his full viceregal ivory-white uniform, and I quote, his chest flashing with a, a breastplate of orders, decorations and medals, unquote. He looked every inch the cousin of the British monarch, King George VI. But it was not just Mountbatten. Walking on the red carpet beside him was the imposing Sardar Ballabhai Patel. His broad and heavy features and glassy and hooded eyes gave the impression of a man worn down by years of struggle. Yet, the 72-year-old man, described by a nationalist leader, and I quote, as a rough diamond in an iron casket, unquote, was at the moment the most powerful figure inside the Congress after Jawaharlal Nehru. Patel was in fact the finance and home minister and he kept the Congress running. Had he achieved his ambition of becoming India's first prime minister, his centrist pro-market ideology would have seen the country take a radically different course from the socialist model that Nehru espoused. But that was till in future. Let us move back to this Chamber of Princes meeting. Patel alone, of course, did not lead the integration process, integration of the princes. The real architect of the accession and integration of the states was a diminutive Malayali. We've been talking about him. He had a penchant for Savile Row suits, Cuban cigars, and slate blue Cadillac cars, VP Menon. He had a remarkable career. He began as a coolie in the Kolar gold fields and eventually occupied the highest ever position held by any Indian under 
the British government. So he was, of course, the constitutional advisor to three viceroys, Lynn Lithgow, Verwell, and now Mountbatten. He had, as I said, come up with the deceptively simple plan of accession limited to three subjects, defense, foreign affairs, and communications. Now, Mountbatten would now deliver his lecture. Let us turn to Mountbatten. As Mountbatten took his place on the dais, the gloom seemed to lift, and a frisson of excitement filled with anticipation covered the room. For the past quarter century in this room, the chiefs of various states in India had tried in vain to overcome their divisions and present some kind of a shared common front. It didn't work out. There was no consensus among them, therefore. Mountbatten knew many of these princes personally. Maharaja of Bekaner and Jaipur and the Nawab of Bhopal were his uh, close personal friends. Normally, only the viceroy occupied the dais. This time, a special seat was prepared for Patel. The Maharaja of Dungarpur, Maharawal of Dungarpur, quite clearly understood it as a signal that the tide was turning against the princes. Labour Prime Minister Attlee chose Mountbatten to oversee India's independence because, and I quote, he could not only talk of the hind leg of a donkey but also the throne from under a prince, uncooked. So uh, the next hour when he'd speak, the viceroy lived up to this estimation. He spoke without notes and he gave one of the most impressive performances of his long career. Menon called it the apogee of persuasion. He used every weapon in his oratorial armory. Let's turn now to the lecture. What did Mountbatten actually say? He told the princes that he was about to present them with a take it or leave it offer. It would not be repeated. They would be given instruments to sign, which provided for accession on just three subjects. Their internal affairs would be left untouched. There would be no financial liability on the part of the states, nor would the central government have any part to encroach on their internal autonomy or sovereignty. It was a bargain so advantageous, he told them, that he wasn't even sure that Indian government would accept it. Let me quote him. My scheme leaves you with all the practical independence you can possibly use and makes you free of all those subjects which you cannot possibly manage on your own. Unquote. The core message from the speech was this. I quote, You cannot run away from the Dominion government, which is your neighbor any more than you can run away from the subjects for whose welfare you're responsible. That was how the newspapers covered the event. He played to their love of titles. Mountbatten told the assembled monarchs 
that if they signed on the dotted line, there was every chance that Patel and the Congress would not interfere with their receiving honors and titles from the king. He also issued a blunt reminder. And this would come back to haunt the Indian government later as it grappled with the Kashmir crisis. Let me quote Mountbatten in detail for this particular part. I quote, the states are theoretically free to link their fortune with whichever dominion they may care to. But when I say that they're at liberty to link up with either of the dominions, may I point out that there are certain geographical compulsions which cannot be evaded. Out of something like 565 states, the vast majority are irretrievably linked with the dominion of India. This was indeed the final straw. Mountbatten clearly convinced, persuaded, indeed ordered the princes to fall in line or be removed. The process through which these kings actually responded to his address and case studies of various states coming over to India, remaining intransigent or also at times removed, unseated, dethroned by force, would be the subject of our next two episodes. In the second episode, I explained in some detail the constitutional peculiarities, structures and processes which uh, the state's department devoted itself to, the mentality of Menon and Patel, and the support of Mountbatten behind the process of integration of the princely states to see an integrated India and united India and India that would stand strong, clear and bullish indeed. I'll see you next week. This is History Chatter and we are continuing our month-long series on the integration of princely states. We call it India United. I'll see you next week and yes, a very happy Independence Day, my friends. I could not do it without you. Let's start and remain independent in our thoughts and in our prayers and in our ideas. Goodbye.